Good morning again. Yeah, we're going to keep going through the book of James. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, and unfortunately this is about disunity in the church. The main theme in chapter 4 is pride versus humility, and pride is always the result of what? Pride is the result of me being dominated by my sinful or human nature. Humility always results from me being controlled by the Holy Spirit. And James shows us how being dominated by a sinful nature destroys unity and relationships in the church, as well as our relationship with God because of the damage pride and selfishness does to our prayer life. The overarching theme where we have walking in the Spirit and what kind of life that produces versus walking in the flesh and the kind of life that produces. So let's do a memory verse. It's James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. Okay, big voices again. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Awesome. Okay, so I've titled this first bit, Reasons for Disunity in the Christian Community or the Christian Church. So it's James chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. It says, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and cover and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. So, Father, I just pray. You give us understanding and application as you read these scriptures today. Amen. So what did Jesus say? What have we read in previous weeks? It's, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Matthew 12, 34. So, James is dealing in chapter 4 with the issue of the heart. Now, my daughter asked me if I've got another story for this week. She likes me <laughs> telling a story. I do, but I'm not going to share it. I think that most people already have their own painful stories or experiences when it comes to this very pertinent or relevant topic. So most people, like if you've been a Christian long enough, you've probably been in or seen or witnessed a church split, you know, cliques within churches, power-hungry church leaders, people who are sinning and get angry and cause division when their sin is exposed. And then those those people who act really nice, but all they want is you to do what they want and to believe what they want. And basically, they're trying to draw people into following after themselves to justify their own beliefs. So, before we start, before we get into this, it can be depressing. So, I'm going to start on a positive note, right? I want to point out, that this unhealthy state of affairs that we see in many churches was not and is not always the case. And it does not need to be this way. So we need to start with what God's model for the church is, what God's plan for the church is. Because if we don't have that in the front of our mind, what it can be like if we are led by the Holy Spirit, then it's easy just to get discouraged and give up because we think there is no hope. We start to believe that all churches are as bad as each other. 
we can become disillusioned and disheartened. And what do many Christians do? They just stop going to church. It's really sad. It's very unhealthy to stop going to church. God created the church so that we could grow in our Christian walk as we fellowship together and learn to forgive each other. Where else are you going to learn to forgive each other except in church? With a bunch of sinners hurting each other and then forgiving each other. That's just the way it is. We have a sinful nature. Isolation, like protecting yourself from this, is not the answer. Ask God to give you a merciful and gracious heart and that he will help you to find a church that is seeking to submit to God. So, if we have an accurate understanding of the kind of unity that God desires for the church, instead of giving up, we should be striving in prayer for all members of our fellowship to be filled with the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, or being led by the Spirit, depending what verse you read. So we will not fulfill the desires of the flesh that James is describing here and through the rest of the book. And only then will we experience the amazing, sweet, and beautiful unity that is a fruit of the Holy Spirit working in and through a group of believers. So I emphasize that it's a fruit. You cannot produce unity. It comes from individual believers submitted to the Holy Spirit and then as a fruit of the Spirit is produced in us by God, then the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all those things will automatically just happen. And so this is what James was doing. James was there right at the very start. He became a believer after Jesus rose again. And he experienced true unity in the very early church when almost everyone was being led by the Spirit. We're going to read those verses in Acts soon. However, in just a few years, this is what the church looks like. People biting and devouring one another. People fighting. People being jealous and greedy and envious and all these things. And it all happened in, you know, it could have just been 13 years. It appears that the book of James was written around AD 45. That's only about 13 years after the church was born. So it didn't take long for things to start falling apart. It's really important to look at the church as Jesus looks at the church. So we don't give up on the church. Jesus walks among the churches. Not just one church, but all of the churches. And you find that in Revelation 1, 12 to 13 and 20. And Jesus valued or esteemed the church of God so highly that he was willing to purchase her with his own blood. Acts 20 verse 28. And Jesus also has a glorious plan for the church, which is his body. And we read that plan in Ephesians 5, 23 to 27. It says, For a husband is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the saviour of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. So the key there is, as the church submits to Christ. As we submit to the Holy Spirit, then we can be led by the Spirit. Verse 25, for husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Okay, again, we're not talking about husbands and wives here, but the focus on Christ and the church. Just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her, 
to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. That's a promise to hold on to. The church of God will be holy and without fault in the end. It's just like our individual sanctification, right? We start off immature, spending most of our time walking in our sinful nature, according to our sinful nature. But then we become more mature. Well, God has the same plan for the church. It's in a pretty bad way, the church now, but it doesn't matter because God has a plan. When he comes back, he's going to come back with us. He's going to take us with him. So I'm not trying to say that God is going to make everything fantastic and all the churches are going to be great before the rapture happens. But those who make up the church, both individually and collectively, are going to appear before God holy and without fault. So I consider it like a marriage. A church family is like a marriage. You're always going to have problems and arguments because you've got two sinners, right? in close proximity. Well, in the same way, in church we have more than two sinners in close proximity, in close fellowship, and that's always going to be a challenge. And all the troubles we face are caused by our lack of submission to God. And we find that in Galatians chapter 5, verses 14 to 17. For the whole law can be summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you are always biting and devouring one another, watch out. Beware of destroying one another. You see what's happening? And now here's the cure, here's the solution. And so I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you're not free to carry out your good intentions. So notice how similar what Paul says in Galatians is to what James says here. Paul says, But if you're always biting and devouring one another, watch out. Beware of destroying one another. And unfortunately, people do get really badly hurt in the church. But now you know why. It's because they're operating according to their sinful nature. Now, what can it be like? The good news. What we can aspire to, what we can be praying for. Acts 2, 42-47 All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshipped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Fantastic, huh? That's 
God's ideal for the church. That's how it started. And if the people in the church submit to the leading of the Spirit in their lives, if they repent of their sin, they repent of their own desires, then this can be what it can be like. And praise God, we do experience beautiful fellowship here. Of course, we're not perfect, but God, I think, is really blessing us. Now, if all believers in a church, or at least most of them, are submitted to God, walking in the Spirit, then there will be true unity and the resulting sweet fellowship, genuine love and overflowing joy. So that's what we need to be praying for. And I've got Psalm 133 there. It says, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. So this is how God looks at it. God smiles and God says, Wow, that's so beautiful when people in the church dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon, descending upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord God commanded the blessing, life forevermore. So, let's come back to James. Now we've got the big picture, the overall perspective. James chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and cover and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Unfortunately, James is talking to Christians here, right? So where do wars and fights come from among you? It's a good description, isn't it? How Christians can treat each other sometimes. Battles that happen among Christians can be bitter and severe and cause many to be left wounded and bleeding. And as a result, many choose to stay away from church completely. And this is also a really terrible witness to the world. What did Jesus say about how people would recognize that we are his disciples? Well, John 13, 35, Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Mm. So verse 1, it says, Do they... Not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members. And a quote from David Guzik. The source of wars and fights among Christians is always the same. There is some root of carnality, an internal war within the believer regarding the lust of the flesh. No two believers who are both walking in the Spirit of God towards each other can live with wars and fights among themselves. It's awesome, eh? So what's important to notice here, it's not so much about which person is right or wrong, but what the motive is behind what they say and do. So am I doing something for selfish reasons, or am I doing it genuinely for the other person's good? So I can do a good thing with a selfish motive. I can be doing something that's right with the goal of manipulating or getting someone else to do what I want them to do. You know, it's easy to use religion and the Bible to get what I want. So this is selfish ambition, where I do things for the underlying purpose of getting what I want, no matter how much it hurts the other person. And basically, another way of saying it, it's easy to disguise my true intentions with good-sounding arguments and doctrine, 
and I may even convince myself that what I'm arguing or fighting for is actually God's will. But in the end, I'm only doing and saying what is necessary to get what I want. So that's basically what James is saying here. How many times have you heard a Christian say, I know what God's will is for me, I'm going to do this and that and whatever, and then the next time you see them, they're doing something completely different. You know, well, what happened? Did God change his mind? Or are they doing the, uh, or playing the, this is God's will for me card to justify what they want, to satisfy the desires of their sinful nature for pleasure, selfish ambition, you know, to keep that job or to do this. This is what I've always wanted. I wanted this job. So that becomes God's will for them, you know, because it's what they want. Now, the truth is that discerning between the desires and motives of the flesh and the desires and motives of the spirit can be difficult. Like, take the example of going for a job. It's not right or wrong, but is it God's will? It's not God's will. My advice is to be patient, and if you're not sure, then wait for confirmation. Stay in the Word and keep doing what you already know that God has told you to do until God clearly shows you otherwise. And also beware of advice from others who may mean well but can be misguided. If someone claims to have a word for you and God hasn't already revealed it to you, then it's probably not from God. Now it says that war in your members. What does this mean? In verse 1 it says the, the phrase that war in your members. Well, this is James coming to the main point when he says that the problem is within individuals. He's describing the battle between our sinful human nature and the Holy Spirit. Who am I going to submit to? This is the war that goes on inside our members, which is basically our bodies. Because this is where our sinful nature resides. Yeah, Our sinful nature is a part of us, but it's kind of been pushed to the outside, so to speak, because who's living on the inside of us now? As a Christian, who lives on the inside? The Holy Spirit, right? So our sinful nature has been kind of pushed out, but it's still attached to our mortal physical body. And that's why we will have our sinful nature fighting against our new nature until the day we die. And I can't wait to be free of my sinful nature. Those verses in Romans 8, when it talks about the glory of being free from our sinful nature and receiving our new bodies, it's just it's going to be fantastic. There'll be no church splits in heaven because no one will be led by their sinful nature because no one will have a sinful nature. Now, David Guzik described the source of wars and fights as a root of carnality, and this is a good description, because if you put a root in the ground, what happens? It grows and produces branches, and those branches produce fruit. Now, what kind of fruit will it produce? Well, if it's a good root, it'll produce good fruit. If it's a bad root, it'll produce bad fruit. Now, to be carnal, and you'll, you can read this in Corinthians, it means to be immature or controlled by your sinful nature. And Paul describes a similar thing 
in Ephesians 4.27 when he says, do not give place or a foothold to the devil. So the idea here is that we allow some desire or sin to take root in our hearts and then it controls us. It could be unforgiveness and a desire to get even with someone. It could be an ambition to obtain a position of authority or preeminence in the church. It could be a desire to have a good reputation, to be seen as a spiritual person. It could be the giving into a sin which then causes us to justify ourselves by getting others to agree with us or join with us in this sin. It could be a desire to manipulate people to do the things we want them to do or get people to believe what we want them to believe. And a lot of people, well at least some people, have this I'm right and everyone else is wrong mentality. So what James is pointing out here is that the source of problems in the church is individuals who are not walking with God. And why is this important? Because almost everyone who has this kind of critical and contentious attitude claim that they are what? Being led by the Spirit. But if we are not producing the fruit of the Spirit, then I think that's pretty clear evidence that we're not being led by the Spirit. And that's James's point here. He's very practical. Those who are not producing the fruit of the Spirit are not submitted to the Spirit. They're not under His control. So we need to examine ourselves. Where or what are our motives? Do they originate from our sinful nature or from the Holy Spirit? David was very wise, and he wrote a couple of prayers. And I think it would be good for us to read those prayers. Psalm 139, verses 23 to 24 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there's any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Search me, O God, and know my heart. It's basically saying, know what my motives are. Show me what my motives are. Psalm 26 verse 2 is very clear. Put me on trial, Lord, and cross-examine me. Test my motives and my heart. Because we can be deceived by our own hearts. What does the Bible say in Jeremiah about our hearts? The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. And who can know it? I, the Lord, test the heart. Yeah? All right. Now, in verses 1 to 3, it talks about your desires for pleasure that war in your members. You lust and do not have. You murder and cover and cannot obtain. So there's two types of desires that lead to conflict. So you lust and do not have speaks of or describes covetousness. What is covetousness? Well, it's the desire for something that someone else has that you don't have and you're not content with what God has already given you that's covetousness now murder do you think people were actually going around stabbing each other in church no this refers to the anger hatred and animosity that we can have towards others so remember Jesus when he was talking in the Sermon on the Mount Matthew 5, 21, 22, he defined murder as being angry with your brother without cause. So Jesus points out the inward condition of the heart, which causes the outward anger that can eventually lead to murder. And so James comes back and says, hey, you've got murder in your heart. If you're hating your brother, you've got murder in your heart. You're breaking that commandment. In verse 3 it says, yet you do not have. This is the result of a life spent chasing our desires for pleasure. 
It's a very sad, empty and disappointing life. After all the effort I might expend to satisfy my desires for pleasure, I end up empty. So not only do I end up empty, but I've lived a life of conflict, pain and misery. (laughs) Is it worth it? No. Just ask Adam and Eve after they listened to Satan's lie and ate the forbidden fruit. Did they lose anything or gain anything by chasing their pleasures? They lost a lot, didn't they? Yeah. So when we chase our pleasures, we lose the unity because we're now walking according to our sinful nature. And instead of God linking us together by the love and the joy and the peace and the patience that comes through walking with the Spirit, now there's the opposite. There's contention, there's strife. So Spurgeon says, The whole history of mankind shows the failure of evil lustings to obtain their object. Look at anything in the people, wars, whatever they do, because they want something and they can't get it. And they die empty. David Guzik says, This is the tragic irony of the life lived after worldly and fleshly desires. It never reaches the goal it gives everything for. This fundamental dissatisfaction is not because of a lack of effort. This helps us to rationally understand the folly or foolishness of living life after the lusts of the world without animal appetites. You are tempted to fulfill a sinful desire because you think or hope that it may be satisfied, but it will never be satisfied. Why not accept your lack of such satisfaction now instead of after much pain and harmful sin. Verses 2 and 3 says, Yet you do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. So, why am I not satisfied? Now, we've got two reasons here, and it's to do with prayer. One, I'm not praying at all because you do not ask, or... Two, I'm not praying effectively. It says, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. So, as a Christian, I should be spiritually rich, enjoying the amazing array of spiritual benefits that are mine because I am in Christ. So, I just want to go through what we should be satisfied with instead of chasing physical pleasures and things like that reputation and esteem, all that kind of thing. What we have here should satisfy us. So Ephesians 1, 3 to 8. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. So who has blessed us? We have already received every spiritual blessing. What are they? Well, God loves us and chose us to be in Christ, to be holy and without fault in his eyes. So one, we're loved, and he sees us as being holy and without fault in his eyes. Verse 5, it says, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family. That's another huge blessing. We are in the family of God. I love what it says next. 
This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. It brought God great pleasure for us to be brought back into his family. Does it bring us great pleasure to be in his family? Do we have the same joy that God does by being in his family? We should. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. That's his favor, his power, his strength. He gives us things we don't deserve. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. We have forgiveness. He has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. What does James say in James chapter 1, verse 5? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask. And God, he gives to all men differently. Yeah, awesome. I mean, just think about this. If all these wonderful spiritual blessings are not able to satisfy me, then what is? I'm accepted. I'm loved. I'm given everything I need. I'm given wisdom. I'm given his grace, his favor. So, If these things are not satisfying me, the problem is not with God's provision, but rather my appetite. If my appetite cannot be satisfied by what God has already given me, then they are not desires or appetites that come from the Spirit. Does that make sense? Because if they were appetites that came from the Spirit, then they would be already satisfied, already fulfilled because God has already given us every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, we move on to the next sin, talking about prayer still. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. Now, this is like a spiritual law. God will not give unless we ask. And there's a good lesson we can learn from Psalm chapter 2, verse 8. It's God the Father talking to God the Son. And he says this. And it's in the context of Jesus coming back and ruling the earth in the millennial reign. He says this, Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. So what does Jesus have to do to receive the nations and rule? He has to ask. So if even Jesus has to ask the Father for the things promised to him, how much more for us? So what did Jesus teach us about prayer? Well, Matthew 6, 8, he told us to ask. He said in the prayer, give us this day our daily bread. And then there's Jesus teaching on prayer in Luke eleven five to 13. And he said to them, which of you shall have a friend? And go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, Do not trouble me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give to you. I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. So what's Jesus teaching here? Because of his persistence, persistence in prayer, we need to keep asking. And it goes on in verse 9. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. 
It continues verse 11, If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So, the whole theme about prayer is asking. Now, why does God want us to be asking him? Well, it's a sign of submission. God wants us to be depending on him. So when we ask for something, we're bowing ourselves down and we're saying, I need you. I can't do it myself. I don't have this. I need you to give it to me. And so basically, it's a way of reverencing the Lord and saying, God, you're the master. I'm the servant. Would you please help? It's basically having a humble attitude. Because if someone's got a proud attitude, one of the things I find very difficult is to ask for help. True? Spurgeon has a quote. If you may have everything by asking and nothing without asking, I beg you to see how absolutely vital prayer is, and I beseech you to abound in it. Do you know, brothers, what great things are to be had for the asking? Have you ever thought of it? Does it not stimulate you to pray fervently? All heaven lies before the grasp of the asking man. All the promises of God are rich and inexhaustible, and their fulfillment is to be had by prayer. So, we don't ask, don't receive. Now, we move on to another problem with our prayer life, and that is selfish prayer. So there's a sin of prayerlessness, and now there's a sin of praying with the wrong motive. And verse 3 says, You ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. So David Guzik points out that spend is the same verb used to describe the wasteful spending of the prodigal son in Luke 15.14. So he got the money off his father and he used it for worldly purposes to satisfy the desires of his flesh. And that's what it's saying here, that you may spend it on your pleasures. We're asking God to give us things, and we're going to use them to what? Satisfy our sinful nature. So, he says, destructive desires persist, even if we pray, because our prayers may be self-centered and self-indulgent. So, John Corson has a great application, so I'm just going to read it to you. I do pray, you may say, but I don't get what I ask for. That's because you're asking amiss. Prayer is not giving orders, it's reporting for duty. And once a person finally understands that prayer is not man saying, bless the business, bring in the money, solve the problem, and God saying, aye aye captain, his prayer life will be revolutionized. Prayer is saying, Father, what do you want to do in my life? So prayer is saying, Father, what do you want to do in my life? I want you to do what you see is best for me because I get mixed up so easily. And then John Corson tells his story. 
I walked into his room during his nap to find one-year-old Peter John lying on his back, eagerly reaching for an object dangling just inches above his head. Living in a rustic cabin in the woods at that time, we were sometimes surprised by the visitors we would have. And this particular afternoon was no exception, for I was surprised indeed to see the object for which Peter was so intently reaching was a black widow spider. It's like a redback in Australia. We're just like Peter John. We lie on our beds and kneel beside them and, through prayer, grab for things we think would be so wonderful, failing to realise that they are nothing but black widows. Therefore, every bit as exciting to me as prayers God does answer are those he doesn't answer because I know I'll see what I thought was so intriguing and tantalising will prove to be poisonous and deadly. I may me learn not to give orders or grab spiders, but to do what Jesus did in the garden, to submit to whatever the Father has for us. So in summary, what do we need to do if we're going to experience unity in the church? Put Christ first, absolutely. Yeah. How are we going to love one another? Walk in the Spirit, yeah. So if all of us are walking in the Spirit, do we need to try hard to have unity? No, because it's a fruit, isn't it? Okay. The tree, the apple tree doesn't groan and you know struggle to produce apples. The apples just grow. The apple tree just needs to have its roots in the good soil. We need to have our roots in the Word. We need to be submitting to the Spirit, letting Him, letting God live His life through us. And all these things will just happen naturally. It's a beautiful thing. So remember, our prayer life, there's two errors that James has pointed out here. One, we don't pray at all. That's pride, because I don't need to ask. Why should I ask God? I can do it myself. And then you ask amiss that you may spend on your pleasures. You are asking for selfish reasons to use what God gives you to satisfy your own sinful nature desires. So let's pray. Father, I do thank you that you have revealed a couple of things that can go wrong in our prayer life and in our church life. Lord, if we are guilty of the sin of prayerlessness, or the sin of praying selfishly, just asking you for the things that we want. Lord, show us. Put me on trial, Lord, and cross-examine me. Test my motives and my heart. That's our prayer today, Father. Put me on trial, Lord, and cross-examine me. Test my motives and my heart. Show us if we're doing things really because we love you and are submitted to you and we're looking to honour you and please you or because it's just what we want to do. And we're using you as just a, a way of getting what we want. Show us, Father. Reveal what's in our hearts to us today. In Jesus' name, amen.